2: We made it to the end of the week. Time to take a step back from the headlines and dig a little deeper on the weekly news recap. There are a lot of big stories to
3: discuss. A hundred more migrants are expected to be brought to this former CVS at the intersection of 27th and Pulaski in the city's little village neighborhood. This is what we have going on. We've got a snowstorm headed our way. We've got cold weather headed our way. we got powerful wind headed our way. Some migrants are having to live in warming buses tonight, and we've learned at least one bus company is taking Chicago to court over its bus policies.
1: In downtown Chicago, this
0: landing zone meant to be an intake center for migrants arriving to Chicago now, their
1: temporary home.
2: We assembled a panel of world class journalists to break down those stories and more. We have the Chicago Tribune's Cook County and Chicago government reporter, A.D. Quigg, Chicago reporter with Axios, Carrie Shepard, and WBEZ state politics reporter, Dave McKinney. We've been talking about when this day would come for months, and here it is. Heavy snowfall is in progress, and brutally cold temperatures are about to hit. Meanwhile, we still have migrants arriving and being housed in conditions unfit for the cold. So I started off by asking Carrie about the more than three hundred migrants living on buses in the area of the West Loop that's known as the landing zone. Here's Carrie.
1: Well, it's not a good picture, as the Chicago Tribune reported. Um many migrants say they don't have enough to eat, they've been um they don't have access to showers, and as the news just Lisa just reported, this just actually came out in the last hour or so that, you know, Brandon Johnson's, Mayor Brandon Johnson, the city's 60-day limit on, you know, migrants who had been here just to clear up some shelters, they said they will not, they will delay that. In other words, they will not kick out migrants of shelters, uh, next. uh some of whom were set to be, you know, kicked out next week when it's going to be brutally cold. Um, some of the questions that I've seen online is, like, did the mayor not think that it was going to be this cold in January? You know, maybe yeah. not. But the landing zone, they're on buses, and those are not equipped for living. They are just essentially warming buses. But you're talking about, you know, hundreds of people who have never seen weather like this. I mean, this is this is brutal for us, and we're from here.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, A.D., a, a new migrant shelter also opened in Little Village Tell us about that.
0: Right. This is the CVS shelter um, that the state was responsible for setting up. This is at 27th and Pulaski in Little Village. Um, it can house about 220 people, uh, the priorities for families and individuals with disabilities. Um, part of what's made this response in general so difficult is obviously a lack of shelter. The mayor has said over and over, we set up 27 shelters, but all of those shelters are repeatedly filling up because we just keep getting this great volume of people. Um so two hundred and twenty helps, but we've had something like thirty four thousand people arrive. Some have since found shelter, but it's been a constant struggle to find semi permanent places for people to live until they can get rental assistance and live on their own. Um and this is made even more difficult uh because of the lack of heads up generally about who is coming, where they're going to be dropped off, and in what condition. Um the mayor has tried to get bus drop-offs to be better coordinated to get folks to this landing zone first and foremost during regular business hours and in response um, the state of texas to avoid fines and impoundment um, has dropped folks off in the suburbs Mm -hmm. basically at metro stations um, which has made all of this coordination um, much more difficult Uh, and the and even when folks get to their destination like carrie said at this landing zone um, the conditions aren't great. You have people sleeping, uh, sleeping, sitting on buses, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes for nights at a time.
2: Goodness. Uh, I mean, I'm certainly glad to hear about this, uh, you know, this, the city's 60-day shelter limit being extended, at least for now, to, to January 22nd because of the conditions. But, Dave, speaking of, of the suburbs there, I mean, Chicago is struggling to figure out how to house these new arrivals, but so are the suburbs, right? We know dozens, as we talked about last week on the recap, they're creating ordinances to, to block their arrival. I'm hearing now the affluent suburb of Winnetka is the most recent. I mean, how are they dealing with this?
3: Yeah, uh, Sasha, they, they wind up getting a, a bus of uh, migrants uh, arriving at their doorstep on Christmas Day. Uh, it was at a it was at the Hubbard uh, Hubbard woods uh metro stop and uh, as soon as police became aware of it they redirected that bus uh you know down uh, down to the migrant uh, drop-off zone in the city but uh the, the the village of Winnetka has has is doing basically what three dozen other suburban governments uh have have done and that's pass an ordinance that would um you know try to crack down on these these types of, of uh Planned and, and honestly, kind of unwelcome, uh, you know, uh, bus deliveries. I mean, the fact that they're not being coordinated, the fact that these folks uh, have no support system here when they arrive, this is kind of the motivation for Winnetka and the other suburbs. So, basically, mm-hmm. how it works in, in Winnetka, the, the village council voted unanimously to ban these uh, uh, unscheduled one way. Bus drop-offs involving ten or more passengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can only uh, there, there's a period of time when uh, the, the, uh, the buses can can uh, do a drop-off, but they have to. Uh, you know, there have to be uh, there has to be an application process involved. Uh, five days ahead of the drop-off, there has to be an application filled out. Who's on the bus? Uh, who ordered it? Uh, and what's the plan for folks when they disembark? So, I mean, they're they're trying to crack down on it a little bit the way that, that many other suburbs are trying to do.
2: Yeah. Um, so the the consequences for, for bus drivers, if, if they're an hour or two late, the fine is how much?
3: Well, it's similar uh, pretty much across the board in the region here. I mean, the, the Winnetka plan would impose penalties of $750 gotcha. per passenger. And then uh, buses could be impounded.
2: What do you think, Carrie? Do do you think these ordinances will be successful in in stopping buses from coming to these suburban communities?
1: I mean, it doesn't appear that uh, Governor Abbott in Texas really is fazed by any of these maneuvers and these ordinances. I was going to say, you know, Dave said you're talking about the the penalties, you know, against Let's not forget about what happens to the humans on those buses. You know, last week we heard that they arrived too late. They had to wait five hours for the morning metro. Um, And also you bring up the point about coordination. That's happening here in the city as well. You have, you know, these stories of various, you know, nonprofits and, you know, community groups are trying to help the migrants, but they show up and there's no place, you know, there had, they nobody knew they were coming or something. And, you know, so we seem to have a coordination issue as well, which to be fair, the city is dealing, this is, they didn't realize this would continue for tens of thousands of people. So it's a constantly moving target.
2: Uh, Dave, Mayor Johnson's scheduled to meet with suburban mayors next week, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a a meeting of the uh, uh, Metropolitan Mayors Caucus, which, uh, you know, he's, he's got a leadership role in that group and, uh, a lot of towns are coming together to try to, you know, on the subject of coordination, to try to coordinate, uh, a regional response to this, uh, and, and, you know, of course, strengthen numbers here when you're talking communities banding together. I mean, it, 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 elevates, uh, it elevates their needs basically. You know, what, what, what can the state of Illinois do? What can the federal government do? These are, you know, you've got a group of, of, important cities now that are coming together to, to to make the case that there needs to be help from, you know, both the state and the federal government to deal with this.
2: Now, A.D., we've now had more than 30,000 migrants arrive here in, uh, in Chicago from the southern border. I mean, do you see any way that these communities can all work together?
0: One has to hope that there can be some kind of coordination um, for the sake of dealing with a humanitarian crisis. Like one would hope that they could get together and figure something out to grant these people coming here some grace. Um, I think that there's something to be done, but a lot of times the issue is often uh, what the cost is. Obviously we saw this at the very beginning of the, of the crisis where Chicago was the only uh, place providing shelter and a lot of goods and no one else in the suburbs kind of picked up any slack because of the the cost of doing so. Um, We've obviously seen the city has racked up, I think something like $156 million in cost. The situation has leaned on the state, Um, but even if they can get some kind of communication network going about uh, when folks will arrive, who will be maybe accompanying these buses or greeting these chartered planes when they arrived, I think it would help. It would help a lot and prevent these kind of situations that Carrie was mentioning where Maybe you miss the metro and you have to wait hours and hours in the cold mm-hmm. in flip-flops and shorts with maybe a blanket to help you heat up in the meantime.
2: A.D., sticking with you for a moment here, another group impacted by the cold temperatures are the city's unhoused population, right? Mayor Johnson supporting this tax increase on higher-priced property sales with money going towards addressing homelessness. We're talking about bring Chicago home, of course, but there's a new lawsuit trying to block that. So give us the details.
0: Yes. So there have been a coalition of largely real estate groups who have been opposed to this ballot question from the start um, to remind people the ballot question would lower taxes on 94% of home sales just by a little bit. So right now it's a, it's a flat tax, 0.75%. So if voters say yes, this would slightly lower that tax for properties valued at less than a million dollars and then raise it on everybody else. And the, the big impact that this would have would be on big commercial property. So big commercial property groups, apartment groups, um, office buildings have been the most opposed to this. And they filed suit last week to stop the referendum question from appearing on March primary ballots in the first place. Um, They basically allege uh, that it violates the state's uh, municipal code and the constitution. Um, It has to do with how this question would appear to ballots or on ballots in three parts. It's very technical, and in the past, a lot of these uh, suits have not been successful. But in any case, it's a a distraction from the mayor's message. It kind of casts doubt on whether this thing is going to appear on ballots in the first place and kind of adds a new dimension to um, what we were already expecting to be a very heated campaign because this is a big priority for the mayor, a big priority for his, his progressive allies, and kind of marked a very big break between the mayor and the business community that he kind of hoped to work with at least and have at the table during his administration.
2: The cold may also impact our neighbor to the West. The Iowa caucus is three days away and the forecast for Monday morning. There's a high of negative two degrees. So former President Donald Trump seems to be running, seems to be the Republican front runner in that state, at least so far. You've been covering some challenges, though, Dave, that Trump has here in Illinois. Catch us up.
3: Well, I mean, the, the, the first one uh, it, it, uh, last week was the deadline to uh, for presidential candidates in Illinois to file to get on the March 19th primary ballot. And so uh, Trump's campaign filed the, the, the signatures to do that. And within basically minutes of that filing, there was a, a, an objection uh, brought by a group, a voting rights group that uh, has been instrumental in some of these other states that have, have challenged Trump's eligibility along with five Illinois voters and a couple of Chicago law firms. They, they are objecting to Trump's uh, candidacy on the basis of the 14th Amendment, which has language that, that dates back to the Civil War or post-Civil War that says that insurrectionists can't hold public office. And this, of course, is a, uh, you know, we, we've heard a lot in the news about this lately, and it all uh, relates to Trump's uh, role in the January 6th riots at the Capitol. And, and so uh, right now we're looking ahead to a, a hearing in front of the uh, State Board of Elections on January 30th where uh, this bipartisan board is going to take this up. And there's a, a good chance that they could stalemate or decide that they're not going to do anything with this, in which case I think we'll see this move into the into the state's court system. And, uh, you know, the, the chances of, of this getting into the, the lap of the state Supreme Court, I would say, are decent because, uh, you know, there's urgency behind it. Uh, even though the U.S. Supreme Court has gotten involved now by picking up a, a similar challenge in the state of Colorado, that you know that's a state that, that has already voted to kick him off the, the ballot. Not, I mean, the Supreme Court there did, mm-hmm. and and so you know this is all playing out now in Illinois, and and all of these cases are, are interwoven, and uh, the state Supreme Court could be involved in this. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court also could could step in and set parameters. So that's that's going on right now in Illinois.
2: Yeah, so we've got many states. At this point, challenging Trump's eligibility, right?
3: Yeah, right now. I mean, Illinois is among 15 where there are pending objections or lawsuits. Uh, you know, dealing with this 14th Amendment issue.
2: Another notable thing about Trump's candidacy in Illinois: so he skipped signing something that alarmed some people, Dave.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, this is this is sort of a a, a standard thing. It's called the uh, the loyalty oath. When when Trump filed his nominating petitions. Uh, There's an optional filing that that candidates dating back to the 1950s uh, in Illinois have been asked to sign, and it it basically is a, you know, it's it's only optional now, but it it dates back to the McCarthy era and asks candidates to attest that they're not communists. But then where Trump comes into this, and and is interesting, there's language in this oath that, that, you know, a candidate is asked to pledge that they won't overthrow the government. And so, you know, in in light of all of these questions surrounding Trump's role uh, in in fomenting what happened on January 6th at the nation's capital, this loyalty oath and the fact he didn't sign it it was really interesting because during his two previous runs for president in 2016 and in 2020, he signed the Illinois loyalty oath. And so the story kind of took off. Um, I, I, you know, uh, last week when I was reporting on it, I called. Uh, just in trying to get reaction to this, I reached out to the Biden campaign. They, they weren't aware of this. And then on Saturday, uh, Biden himself put out a statement that, that just today I'm not surprised by this, basically. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of kind of buzz about about his uh, about Trump's uh, unwillingness to sign this this oath this time around when he did it before two te- two previous times. Mm-hmm.
2: We took a closer look at a challenge to Donald Trump's candidacy in Illinois. But there's a lot more news to get to, like new state laws that went into effect this year. Here's Carrie on the laws that will impact workers.
1: Paid leave is a big one, that all workers in Illinois are now guaranteed up to 40 hours of paid leave. Um, This comes on the heels of, you know, something Chicago passed, that, you know, we have one of the nation's most expansive workers' time-off policies um, guaranteeing workers and you know, full-time workers at least ten days off each year. Uh, minimum wage is another one that Illinois workers will get um a slight boost to fourteen dollars an hour and eight fifty for tipped workers, which I think is relevant just because, you know, there are lots of discussions now about tipping. I think we've all, I'm sure you've talked about in reset, we've seen mm-hmm. uh surcharges at restaurants and you know, businesses saying, look, this is to help offset costs and help give our employees benefits. So, um, just a, a raise to the minimum wage for them is significant as well.
2: Yeah. Illinois also got a lot of attention, Carrie, for a book ban law. Remind us what that's about.
1: Yeah. This is, um, this we heard a lot about last year. And this is, uh, Illinois secretary of state, Alexi Genulius really pushed, pushed this. And obviously, um, the governor, governor Pritzker signed it, which is that the state has the, the state is not they will i'm sorry <laughs> get it straight here um materials cannot be removed because of partisan or doctrinal doctrinal disapproval and prohibits the practice of banning specific books or resources this comes out of like especially we've seen this even in the suburb, suburbs of uh chicago with these moms of liberty who you know say they want you know this book off the shelf and this book out of schools um and mm-hmm. Secretary of State, who's also the, the state's librarian, if you didn't know. That's why he's pushing this. Um, they became, Illinois became the first state to enact this law penalizing uh, state-funded institutions on book bans.
2: Now, uh, Dave, sticking with state laws, I mean, what did the Supreme Court have to say about a challenge to Illinois' assault weapons ban?
3: Well, there was a, an effort by a, by a downstate Republican uh, out of Decatur to challenge the uh, state Supreme Court's uh, 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 ruling upholding the assault weapons ban uh, on the basis that, uh, you know, there were two big state Supreme Court elections uh, last year in which uh, Governor Pritzker was heavily involved, heavily, you know, financially supporting uh, two of these uh, justices. Uh, and and basically the, the, the whole nub of the argument that, that was you know, in federal court here was, you know, this this is an impartial judicial body because uh, they're, they're taking money from uh, they're taking money from people who have a vested interest in the assault ban. Of course, Pritzker signed that assault ban. But but the, the Supreme Court without comment said uh, they weren't going to hear it. And so it, it was, you know, shot down, sort of a tree falling in the middle of the forest uh, in a way, because uh, it, it was a it, it was sort of a, an off kilter kind of legal argument in the first place because uh, you know this this is something that cuts both ways. Republicans in the past have put lots and lots of money behind judicial candidates in the state of Illinois. Business groups have, and and you know that's just the way that we elect our Supreme Court in Illinois. It's a, it's a, an electoral process where money is involved, and if you were to to basically say that if somebody has taken a co- campaign contribution. From anybody, it, it could, you know, create real chaos uh, at the state supreme court level. So, anyway, hmm. the U.S. Supreme Court said no dice.
2: Ad, what do you think? Do you think we're going to see more challenges to Illinois' assault weapons ban?
0: I defer to, to Dave on what legal avenues are left here, but um, I think where possible, we will see challenges kind of pop up. Um, this is a this is an issue that people feel very strongly about, and. Uh, yeah, I defer to Dave on whether they, whether opponents have basically exhausted their options here.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that, uh, Sasha, I think that they're going to be, they, there will continue to be, uh, uh, you know, legal challenges to this law on grounds that it's an infringement on the Second Amendment. Uh, this, this was more of a due process argument that, that got shot down by the courts. So I think there's still this kind of fertile area where the, the guns, right, gun rights groups are, are, you know, they believe that they might have a chance of, you know, going in front of a, a friendly U.S. Supreme Court on, on a gun issue like this and having it having it be invalidated. So we'll we'll see if that comes. But it, it, it certainly is in the pipeline.
2: The assault weapons ban was passed after the Highland Park Parade shooting of 2022, as we remember. The alleged shooter made news this week, though, A.D., what what is the latest on Robert Cremo, the third?
0: Right. He's, of course, accused of killing seven people at the 4th of July parade in Highland Park in 2022. Um, he had invoked his right to a speedy trial last month after he dismissed his attorneys. Um, so it was looking like a jury trial was going to be set for late next month, but that date got taught. So this is like a lot of moving legal parts. Uh, Primo dropped his attorneys, wanted to represent himself, then reappointed his attorneys. Those lawyers have asked for the trial to be delayed until next february prosecutors would like one in the fall and in the meantime he has been held at the lake county jail since he was charged in again july of 2022 he's facing 117 felony counts related to this shooting and of course um residents of highland park and the rest of illinois are kind of waiting for justice here and it seems like it will be a long ways away
2: before we close our conversation on new laws, Carrie, I got to go back to your article here, and I, I've got to mention the one that you close with. It's a, a new law that has to do with bears. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was one of the the more fun ones that uh, I saw, which is that it's a Class B misdemeanor for any person, um, except obviously for people exempt, some exempted people who have to work with bears, uh, to come in contact with a bear or non-human primate. So I dug into this a little bit and the sponsor of this, state senator Linda Holmes, this actually is an issue of animal cruelty. So it's less funny than, uh, it seems on its face, but really it's about, you know, not like, stopping anybody who's interfering with a bear or a primate. And because that could lead to a cycle of, of, you know, breeding. Right. And, uh, now- cruelty. Carrie, be,
2: was this a problem in Illinois? I mean, we, we talked about it know. this morning in our meeting, and we had a few folks scratching their heads like, Illinois, bears?
1: I don't know. And, I I mean, perhaps maybe this is just something that's a maybe a, uh, no pun intended, pet issue for this state senator. Senator Holmes is maybe big on animal cruelty. And so, you know, perhaps where she is, um, this is an issue. But I, I didn't come across that this is a big issue yeah. everywhere.
3: Well, I mean, we have the Chicago Cubs. I mean, do they they... <laughs>
2: i I was waiting for someone to make a sports reference (laughs) a
3: a dad joke very sorry sorry
2: oh my goodness
1: (laughs) this is too of like bears like are are quite sad of climbing out of these cages but you know the intent there is very serious and and good of ending animal cruelty
2: i'm going to stick with you carrie because a chicago police officer was wounded this is after uh, responding to a robbery at the prada store in the gold coast what happened
1: yeah, that's part of this uh this trend that's been happening, these kind of crash or smash and grabs where a car, you know, usually in the middle of the night, smashes through these, through usually upscale, like in Gold Coast, like Prada stores, and grab a bunch, as much, you know, merchandise as they can. Um, This particular suspect, whom I don't think has been arrested yet, was actually, um, has other federal charges, uh, gun charges, I believe Chicago sometimes reported. And this has led, um, this has led to the alderman there. Brian Hopkins mm-hmm. is posing possibly putting up, um, you've maybe seen them in other cities. I know my editor in DC, she says they have them in Georgetown and they actually do not look as bad as you may think, but these sort of barriers mm-hmm. to prevent cars, from coming in, you know, coming onto the sidewalk and in into the in, into the stores, and he, you know, Hopkins says it's not even it's not that costly, and compared to what it would save, so you know, it would change the look somewhat of there. I think kind of around Rush Street, and you know, it's still it's a bit crowded already, so yeah. I'm not sure how how that's, but it also, you know, a, a bonus of that, depending who you are, um, it would add some more pedestrian access probably as well. But um, that is one proposal that has been talked about.
2: Turning to other public safety strategies, A.D., the uh, Civilian Police Oversight Board began accepting applications this week. Who's eligible?
0: It's kind of a limited list uh, with a couple exceptions. So Commissioners must be a Chicago resident for at least five years. You cannot have been an alumnus of the Chicago Police Department, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, or the Chicago Police Board. And you need to have experience in law, public policy, social work, community organizing, or civil rights. Um, That does not apply to two of those seats, which are meant to be set aside as youth seats. Um, Two will be from the north side, two from the south side, two from the west side. Um, as complicated as this all sounds, this is a big deal. This is kind of a grand experiment we're undertaking in Chicago and in community influence on the Chicago Police Department and other kind of public safety oversight bodies. Um, this body helps craft policy at the Chicago Police Department. So vacancies in public safety bodies. Um, this will be a seven member body, as, as you mentioned. And it's, um, it's exciting. I was a little nervous, um, when there were elections for district members Mm -hmm. for the ccpsa and we actually had surprisingly good turnout in those elections and the current the current head of the ccpsa said he's already gotten um, inquiries from 10 folks who want to run for this anthony um, driver anthony driver yeah yeah. anthony driver plans to run again for the seat as well so i'm excited to see um what kinds of folks apply and what um what the campaigns look like
2: another issue involving police dave uh the ban on chicago officers joining extremist groups that is about to go into effect, but we did learn about a UIC campus cop's troubling ties to one of these groups.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is an outgrowth of, of continued excellent reporting by uh, my colleague Dan Helhoplis and with sometimes Tom Shuba, where they, they, they've been spending months looking into extremist uh, infiltration into uh, police organizations across the state. This one involved a, a, an officer named Matthew Polish. He had signed up and was paying dues to the anti-government group Oath Keepers, which uh, that group was uh, instrumental in in January 6th uh, and and the damage done at the Capitol. And uh, he, you know, the the news, I guess, that these two reported involving Polish was that uh, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office notified uh, UIC and their their police shop there that, that no longer would they accept any kind of testimony in any case involving Polish because of his uh, ties to exp- extremism so uh th- that's a uh, oh, okay. uh you know an important step that that the county is is taking here to to show that they you know they don't they won't tolerate this kind of extremism within the the the, the ranks of, of police officers
2: but but polish got to keep his job right He's
1: gonna retains his job right
3: yeah, yeah, he he, uh, he retained his job, and so uh, he's he's staying he's staying put there. But there, you know, he, he's he's basically kind of been neutered in a way here, where like you know he can still I, I guess perform some duties of a police officer, but in terms of uh, you know actually going into court, doing anything criminally that, that the state's attorney's office would be involved in, there's no involvement.
2: Is that surprising to you, Carrie?
1: Uh, it's not surprising to me, sadly, uh, that he's that he kept his job. And like Dave said, people should really go back and read um, Dan and Tom's reporting. Mm-hmm. It's really very good, um, and it's alarming in many ways. Uh, just you know that these these oath keepers that they managed to stay on the police force.
2: Yeah, this UIC cop is not alone. There's a list of Chicago police officers whose you know questionable credibility means that they might not make great witnesses. Right, Dave?
3: And there, there are 10, of, uh, 10 Chicago cops that the state's attorney has taken similar action on.
2: While we're talking about public safety and justice, AD, just get us up to speed on the Cook County state's attorney candidates that we're voting on in, in March. What's happening in that race? Is there uh, some drama?
0: There's, there's some drama. That's the way to put it. So um, over the, the holiday break, both I at the Tribune with my colleague Sam Charles and WBEZ reported um, one of the two candidates running for Cook County State's Attorney in the Democratic primary in March. Um, Eileen O'Neill Burke was involved in a case in the early 90s. Uh, this was when there was a ton of hand wringing over youth violence. This came up around the same time as the Yummy Sandifer case, if folks remember that. Um, Burke prosecuted an 11 year old black boy who had con- confessed to murdering his next door neighbor, Anna Gilbus, who was in her 80s. Um, this child confessed, but that confession and details of the crime basically did not match. So there were no fingerprints found at the scene. There was an adult-sized footprint and palm print that didn't match this kid. Um, he confessed to sneaking into the home through an unlocked back door, but the door was actually pried open. Um, he said he used a uh, planter, a hanging planter cord to tie her up, which was actually tied up with a telephone cord. Um, and it turns out a judge found later that the confession was coerced by a Chicago police detective, and that conviction was overturned. And the the kid had no uh, previous criminal record, no psychological disorders, no history of violence, no trouble at school, no gang ties. But afterward, he kind of cycled through the system, um, convicted of drug and theft charges, and he was eventually shot and killed himself in 2018, which kind of raised the question of what what Am's life would have been like had he never gone through this prosecution in the first place. So um, Justice Burke's opponent in the Democratic primaries, named Clayton Harris III,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, he he basically said, called into question um, Burke's judgment in prosecuting this case in the first place, and pointed out that um, the the consequence of this is no justice for Anna Gilbus, the woman who was murdered back in the 90s, and no justice for Am. Um, Whose murder is also still unsolved. Yeah. Um, justice Burke has said she prevented the best case possible based on the law and the evidence that was presented by the police. Um, she did not have reservations about it at the time, no red flags, and that it was a really brutal crime. And she was seeking justice for Anna Gildas. But I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this case as mm-hmm. the as the primary gets closer. She pointed out there's also a Libertarian candidate, there's also a Republican candidate, Bob Piretti.
2: All right, gang, Uh, we are going to talk now about some issues concerning Chicago public schools. But first, I wanted to squeeze in an email that we got from Reset listener J.P. Paulus this morning. Uh, He says, can someone mention about how CPS stayed open while most other schools have closed? And especially, can someone ask the question, did CEO Pedro Martinez drive any kids or anywhere at all, as many parents did since school was open? Of course, JP is referring to today, you know, the winter storm that's happening outside right now. He goes on to say, I drove from Bronzeville to Burnside Scholastic Academy at 91st and St. Lawrence in the Chesterfield-Chatham area. And I know many other parents, especially on the south and west sides, had that long commute. Any thoughts, Dave? It's quite the snowy roads out there.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it was a bit of a surprise that uh, CPS was in, in session today when many of the other districts weren't. But again, I think, you know, it's the, the storm like the one before it, I mean, I think people were trying, the, the weather casters were trying to figure out where the the rain line and the snow line was going to be. And, and so I, you know, I I, I can't look inside the, the heads of the uh, executives at CPS why they made the call that they did. But, yeah. but certainly there's been plenty of warning that this was coming. So,
0: right. Yeah. My my colleague um, Alice Yen was at the press conference today with uh, Mayor Johnson where they announced the change to the shelter policy and Pedro Martinez was asked about this and said basically like to, for me to cancel school it, it's irresponsible to do it on very short notice because of the effect that it has on parents being able to work mm-hmm. so he said I'm not going to cancel clans- classes because unless it's an extreme situation because I know the effect it has on mm-hmm. families um, he also said about 30 schools including annexes had power outages today Uh, Most were resolved or alternate sites were found. I I, I think his general gist is, and this was true during uh, COVID to an extent too, was like, we got to keep, we have to try to keep schools open when we can just because it's so important for so many families to be able to drop their kids off and go to work.
2: Yeah. Well, JP, thank you for sending your email to reset at wbez.org. AD, I'm going to stick with you here because we got to talk about the inspector general for CPS and his annual report that came out this week. Uh, some of the findings here. First off, uh, we learned CPS lost track of more than 77,000 electronic devices. I mean, is that normal? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> and it's like the the value of this, uh,
0: I think it's tw- more than $23 million. Um, this is, of course, you know, laptops and tablets that uh, the district gave out during e-learning, during COVID. Um, so they were marked as stolen or lost but some were just sitting on shelves or in desks uh, at schools. It was just, they were not being tracked or accounted for. Um, CPS, is, they have an internal tracking system. It was barely used, which is a big part of the problem. The other part is a lot of schools don't have like tech managers who are keeping track of these things. Um, teachers themselves already have enough to do and don't have time to go around asking students or their fellow teachers, hey, you were supposed to have 25 computers. Where are all of the computers and give me their serial numbers so I could put it into our internal tracking systems. Um, but also in a lot of cases, kids and teachers were not even asked to return them. So at at thirty six schools, every device assigned to a student was marked as lost and stolen. These are just like black holes in terms of where these devices are. Um, the district has gotten some back. They sent uh, what they sent recovery messages to fifty thousand. Of those laptops and tablets that were reported lost and stolen, and about 12,000 were brought back, uh, and most were just sitting inside school. So part of this is like the "did you look under the bed" problem, or did you did you check that one drawer that you sometimes keep things in? But it's just a a remarkable a remarkable number.
2: Yeah, I mean, did, did the IG have suggestions on how to improve the situation? But
0: basically, lean more on your internal. Tracking yeah. system, like you, you guys really actually need to use this, please. It's important and valuable. Um, there are also like outside uh consultants that can do this, outside services that can keep track. Um, and there are there's geo tracking that they can use, uh, but it seems like they did not use those in this case, yeah. to track them back down. Uh,
2: the IG's report also highlighted the case of a suburban family lying to get into an elite Chicago high school, Carrie.
1: Yeah, this was a family in Lincolnwood, just in, you know, just a very close northern suburb who um, did exactly what selective enrollment was created, you know, part of the system. They exploited the system, you know, that the reason exp- that selective enrollment was created was, you know, to create more equitable opportunities for kids. So it's it's a kind of ranking system based on your socioeconomic status. And essentially what these parents did is they recorded a kind of less wealthy address. So that would boost up their kids' opportunities to get into, you know, Northside College Prep, Whitney Young, two of the best schools in the country, frankly. Um, And, you know, they were pretty affluent. And this is, they were sort of, it essentially takes away the opportunity from a student who maybe is from a, a less affluent part of the city who yeah. would you know, scored higher and also that they live in Lincolnwood, which is not, which is not in Chicago. Right. Um, Yes. So this,
2: this incident, Carrie, do you think it'll bring the the competition to to get into these selective enrollment high schools under more scrutiny?
1: I mean, it's already kind of under a lot of scrutiny. I don't, I'm not sure. I feel like the IG's report and I could be very wrong, but I, I feel like it kind of uncovers cases like this every once in a while. Um, so, but you know, the selective enrollment, we've been hearing a lot about it anyway because the Chicago Board of Ed, you know, they passed this resolution to maybe steer more towards neighborhood schools. To be clear, they did not say selective enrollment is ending, which some people have said, which is not true. Um they just said they want to focus more on neighborhood schools and, you know, the a case like this, yeah, it's clearly this this family exploited the system clearly. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, the city council is also grappling with questions about ethics. A.D., fill us in. Yes,
1: yes. Uh, so I wrote the story because
0: every every time you get a new mayor, the city's board of ethics comes up with uh, tweaks to its ethics ordinance, passes it along to the mayor, and council says, ah, oh, take a look, maybe you want to do some of this stuff. And there are some really interesting proposals in there, and this is even more interesting coming off the heels of uh, Alderman Ed Burke's conviction. Um, and there are interesting proposals but like, unlike... Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who basically made her name in 2019 on being a good government candidate and everything Ed Burke was not. This does not seem like a very high priority for Mayor Johnson at the moment. Um, This was not a big campaign drum he was beating. This has not been something he's talked about as a legislative priority. When I asked the mayor's office about it, they said, you know, transparency is good. These are good proposals, but not much else. Um, The sense I get from folks watching this is that the mayor is not opposed to any of these ethics changes but kind of wants to let council do its own thing um and there are so many other kind of front burner issues that need to be managed mm-hmm. and him trying to police council at this time when he needs as much cooperation from them as possible is difficult um but some of these proposals are uh, probably going to be very thorny uh, one of the biggest ones i expect to get pushed back is one that would limit campaign contributions from leaders of businesses who have city contracts. So right now, businesses can't donate more than $1,500 to uh, city folks running for office, but leaders of those businesses can donate even more. So if Company A has business with the city, it's capped. But the president of Company A can give close to $7,000. Mm-hmm. So can the secretary, so can the treasurer. So this would this would cap those all together at $1,500. Also changes for city contractors, making them subject to the same ethics rules as regular city employees, which is kind of remarkable that that didn't exist before. Right. And then other, other kind of campaign stuff, like a stand-by-your-ad pledge for candidates so they can't pretend like they didn't see um, a mailer going out that had maybe incorrect information on it. And then rules to ensure that there's not a repeat of the debacle that Mayor Lightfoot went through last year mm-hmm. where her campaign emailed a bunch of CPS employees asking for interns.
2: Dave, let's briefly turn to one of your stories from this week. This had to do with a popular tax credit.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's called the standard exemption, and if, you know, we're we're about to enter tax filing season here, and uh, this is something that Pat Quinn uh, was a priority for him when he was governor. The the, the it, this is a, this exemption was you know it, it had stood at like I think two thousand dollars that you could take off of your income before applying what the tax you know whatever your tax rate was, mm-hmm. and. Uh, this in, th- there was an inflation index that was attached to it. So every year it was going up. And that was basically kind of a, 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 an effort to try to help, you know, get tax savings for families. Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the final, you know, effort to pass the state budget last May, in the fine print of this massive uh, budget bill, there was a pause put on the inflationary escalator of this exemption. And, and that happened to follow – the, a year in which inflation 2022 was as high as it had been in 40 years and so so basically the calculation was that for a family of four by not having it having this exemption increase for inflation it, it's costing about forty dollars and and so quinn when he found out about it went on the warpath and is calling on legislators and governor pritzker to reinstate this before we get into tax filing season and you know he, he came up as, as he has his entire career with these pithy quotes it's like you you can be robbed by a six gun or a yeah. fountain pen and on this one we got robbed by a fountain pen goodness so you know there you have it but, <laughs> My goodness. but the, 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 one, one little interesting wrinkle is that that nobody is is claiming uh pride of authorship of this which mm-hmm. is kind of an entertaining thing so we'll see what happens
2: Just under a minute, folks, left. Uh, I'm curious what you've got going on into next week. Carrie, what's on your radar?
1: Uh, Prepping for the DNC, actually. There's a walkthrough next week. Uh, The Democrats, Illinois Democrats, are hosting that for media. So Things are starting up. They're starting up, I hope. And I think I'm going to see A.D. there, which I'll be happy about. Heck yeah. Heck yeah, I'll be there.
2: (laughs) What else are you working on, A.D.?
1: Um, I'll be looking at campaign finance
0: filings. we're it's getting to that time of the quarter. Um, right. so I want to see, want to see how the mayor's doing and a few other uh, committees I'm interested in the spring Chicago home stuff is heating up as well. so oh, yeah, for sure there's money going to that.
3: Mm-hmm. And Dave you know while we've been on the air here, Governor Pritzker sent Governor Abbott in Texas a letter that that you know asked him, pleaded with him to to stop sending migrants here during this this cold snap we're gonna be having in the next few days. Yeah. So you know as the temperatures get, into sub-zero range here. It'll be interesting to see next week oh, what happens.
2: Yeah, that's WBEZ's Dave McKinney and Carrie Shepard of Axios, as well as A.D. Quigg of the Chicago Tribune. Thank you all. This episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Andrea Gusman and it was edited by Meha Ahmed. If you liked the episode, consider liking or subscribing to the podcast. Or better yet, share the episode with a friend. It helps us find listeners like you. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thank you so much for listening. And hey, take it easy over the long weekend.
3: At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's ThruLine takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts.